Good morning, everybody. Hey, if you are elementary school age, you're welcome to head downstairs for some sprouts. Gonna have some fun down there. So, hey, uh, just welcome. Glad you guys are here this morning. It's always good to be together as a family, and it's always fun to have new people uh, come into your family. And so, welcome you guys here. Uh, we really, we're, we're a smaller church, and so we want to be connected. And even as we grow, we want to stay connected. And so, uh, make sure that you're 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 reaching out to if you're if you're an, if you're a longtime greenhouse person, make sure you reach out to newer greenhouse people and, and connect. And, and if you haven't, be sure that like we have little connect cards downstairs. You can, it's a great way to share your information with, with Drew or I or whoever else. So, um, but yeah, just we want to stay connected there and, and, uh, and grow together. So, okay. Question. How many of you have heard of Asbury college? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. How many of you knew of Asbury college before three weeks ago, raise your hand. None of us. One. You, say what? You knew somebody that went there. That's awesome. There you go. So one, one out of a hundred people. <laughs> so Asbury, um, <clears throat> up until two years ago, it was a little NAI school. NAI is you got D1, D2, D3, and NAI, right? It's a small school. Uh, like I think like two or three years ago, it became a NCAA Division three school. Uh, their, their student population is about 1,500 students, and it sits in a rural Kentucky town of about 6,000 people, right? Um, it very similar. It's a, it's a Christian school. Now, now you hear Christian college, you think, oh, a bunch of, you know, nerdy, you know, Bible students and stuff like that going around, right? Like, hey, that's offensive. That's what I was. Okay. So um, no, like these are, these are, are private schools that are, are, you know, they have tons of degrees and majors, they're legitimate and everything like that. But it's it's kind of like Tabor that I went to and, and some of us went to or Dort University where my boys are uh, Carter and Colson are going to next year. Um, honestly, the people that don't know about like NAI schools or D3 schools, they think, what? I didn't even know that existed, right? Outside of Utah, you have your big D1 schools and then there's nothing else, right? And so like this Asbury College, Asbury University seems really insignificant in the grand scheme of things. It's this little college in this little town, and, and what significance do they have, right? Well, as is true with, the, with a lot of schools like this, um, they, they actually have student chapels. They have chapels for the student body, and it can be once a week, twice a week, three times a week, whatever. Some schools make them mandatory. Others are optional, optional, right, strongly encouraged. And, and it's a time where they want these students to come and to learn about Jesus and to worship and to pray and things like that. I remember when I was uh, having to go to chapel, most of the times I didn't want to go because it was just kind of some boring thing or whatever. And I was actually a Bible major, right? That's pretty bad when your Bible majors don't even want to go to chapels. But on February 8th at Asbury University, um, the assistant men's soccer coach spoke. It was his turn to speak. Assistant men's soccer coach. His name is, is Zach Meerkrebs. And I, I watched the video. It's kind of interesting. He, uh, his first word was what? Um, right? Not this resounding beginning. He proceeded to forget, like, where's the clicker for my slides? I for, Oh my gosh, it's in my pocket. I always forget that thing. And he's wearing the New Balance dad shoes. 
you know, and, and I'm not for sure if he was doing it because he was cool enough to pull off that new balance dad shoes, or if it was just the new balance dad shoes. Right. And, and it kind of went with his dad bod, if you know what I mean? Like, like the guy is not this celebrity, like, Hey everybody, how's it going? He's not dynamic. He's not uh, charismatic. He's not super engaging. He just gets up and he starts to talk for 26 minutes about Romans chapter 12. And he challenges the student body and they kind of show the place. It's not full. It's, it's maybe half to two thirds full. Um, and, and he just talks for 26 minutes about, about loving God, a God's love for us, our love for God and how God loves other people and how we're called to love other people and how we're empowered to do this through the Holy Spirit. And it's really simple. It's not emotional. It's not it's not like super, wow, that was so powerful. I mean, it's, it's just a normal talk, right? I mean, as you get to go into it, it's kind of, it's, it's for good stuff, but it's, it's nothing exciting or rousing in any way. And afterwards he just kind of like prays and he prays over the people and he kind of almost kind of runs off to the side of the stage. And, and he tells later that he actually texted his wife. Wow. I seriously whiffed that one. I'll see you home soon. And he, he leaves, and, and, and afterwards, you have these three just normal-looking college kids get up and lead worship. I don't think they're that great. I think, honestly, our worship team is 10 times better. You know, like, they're, they're 10 times better than a lot. But, but still, I mean, it's just three college kids that are up there, you know, with the piano and, and three college kids singing. And, and a lot of the kids leave out. Um, 19 students stay. And they decide to just stay and pray. And they start just praying with each other, for each other. They start kind of confessing some things. They start just expressing their heart to God. They start listening to God. And, and they're just like praying. And after a while of prayer, they said, you know, let's let's worship some more. And so, so these 19 kids start worshiping again. And they hop back up on stage. And it keeps on going. And all of a sudden, these kids that all had left and go to class or, or whatever it was, they come back by and they hear more singing and more praying. And so they're like, wait, they're still going in there? And they, and they come back in, they're like, what's going on? And, and all of a sudden, next thing, more students and more students and more students and faculty and staff. Two and a half weeks later, an average of 15,000 people a day were a part of this revival. How amazing is that? This podunk little school in this podunk little town with this podunk little pastor, with this podunk little worship team in this podunk little chapter, chapel, with this podunk little message and this podunk little prayer, all of a sudden now there's something happening. And what's so interesting is that since Asbury started in 1890, there have been nine notable revivals in its history. In 130 years, nine notable, noticeable revivals. The second biggest one to the one that's, that's kind of still going on happened in 1970. You ever heard of the Jesus movement? You know the film Jesus Revolution that's coming out soon? This was a big catalyst for it. This tiny little private Christian school influenced an, an entire national movement that forever changed the face of the church in America. What is going on there, right? Now, what's interesting is, is I'm not saying that it's the most amazing thing in the world. It's, it's really cool because what happens is that people rush in and either want to discredit it or they want to glorify it. 
They want to either just say, well, that's not true. And I was just searching through and, and it's amazing at how much stuff is out on YouTube and, and websites that are like trying to discredit it. And there are mean things that are being said. And I don't know the truthfulness, but then there's the other side that try to sensationalize it. It was just saying, let's bottle this and sell it. And what's really cool is that Asbury literally, they got together and they said, no celebrities. They had celebrity pastors and revivalists and worship leaders and everything like that that came in trying to hijack the movement. And they were like, no, no celebrities. I know you're really good and you've sold millions of worship albums and stuff like that. This is not your time. This is the Spirit's time. And so they kept going with these student-led worship. And, and what's funny is I have a friend who whose daughter went and she goes, I mean, they were okay. The, 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 the worship was okay. The, the speaking was okay. Everything like that was okay. But the presence of God was so powerful. It had nothing to do with this school. It had nothing to do with these people. It was all about God. And so what's, what's crazy is that God moved in a mysterious and miraculous way in a seemingly insignificant place. And it all started with taking God's love seriously. I think that this university helps us understand the next church that we're going to look at in the book of Revelation, the Church of Philadelphia. Okay, transition from Jason, the preacher, to Jason, the history prof, because I'm a history nerd. Deal with it. All right, here we go. Philadelphia was called the gateway to the east. It was in, it was like all these other churches. It was in Western modern day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor back then. Um, it was a part of the Greek empire, the Greek kingdom. Um, and it was, it was located right on an entrance into a big fertile valley and was strategically right along some, some, some very influential trade and commerce routes, right? It was, it was home to all these pagan temples and festivals and practices, and it was kind of said that it was the gateway through which the Greek culture spread to the, to the east, okay? It was named um, in the year 2000 BC by the Greek king um, Eumenes, uh, we'll call him Eu, there we go, the second, um, his brother, Attalus. Um, what happened was that Attalus was approached by the Roman emperor to say, hey, we'll make you king if you betray your brother. If you kill your brother, we'll make you the king and we'll put you in place. Well, Attalus said, there's no way. This is my brother. I'm not going to kill my brother just so that I get something out of it, right? And so the king found out that his brother didn't betray him. And he said, I rename you Philadelphus, which Philadelphus means one who loves his brother. And he renamed this city Philadelphia, which means city of brotherly love. Now, it's not just brotherly love, like it's all get together and hang out and hey, we're chums. No, it's literally you chose to be faithful to me out of your love for me. And so I'm going to name an entire city. This is a city of brotherly love. Now, I don't know how you feel about your brothers, but these guys had a very tight brother bond and it was loving. Now, what's interesting is that this church had been planted through missionary journeys and, and like other churches were experiencing this persecution from the, the pagan stuff that was going on. We, I'm sure that was going on, but the real resistance here was happening from the Jewish religious leaders who, who did not follow Jesus and, and denied him and said, no, we're going to persecute you because you believe in this Jesus. And they made life really, really hard. Okay. That's a bit of the backdrop that was going on there. So let's dig into Revelations chapter three. 
verses 7 through 13. You can follow along up on the screen, on your paper, on your phone, on your Bible, whatever you want. Really encourage you to, to take notes or, or underline or whatever so that those later on today or throughout the week, you can continue to dig into this. All right, verse 7. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Okay, there's a couple things going on here. First of all, holy. It says that Jesus is holy. To be holy means that he's one who is of God. He is separate from and over all. He's undefiled. He's spotless. He's without blemish or without stain. So this holiness of God, we have to establish Jesus isn't just some exalted man. He's not just some really cool guy. He is actually God himself. He is God in physical form on the earth. And he lived, he breathed, he died, he overcame death, right? He is holy. Jesus alone is overall. He's sovereign. Only Jesus is worthy for worship. He is able to judge and rule as needed. Now, this is really, really key. The second one is that he's described as being true. True means real, genuine, faithful, unchanging. Jesus isn't only true. He is truth. If we want to know what truth is, seek Jesus. Is it not interesting that Satan's original attempt to get us to sin deals with my sovereignty versus God's sovereignty? That's what all sin comes down to, I think. The, the older I get, I think a lot of our issues comes down to, I don't want a sovereign God. I don't want a God that is over me, that, that I am weak and powerless and, and like, I have nothing compared to this God. We want to hold on to, to our sense of strength and independence and, and our own sense of sovereignty. As I, as I talk with friends of mine that, that haven't followed Jesus yet, a lot of times it comes down to, well, I want the credit for what I do. I'm a good person. I'm this. I want that. And that's where it comes down to a lot of times is that we don't like the idea of a sovereign God. Guys, I've been walking with the Lord for a lot of years. I'm, I'm a pastor, right? Like, can I just confess to you that some years ago, I realized I have a real big issue with the sovereignty of God. Just being honest. I, I was, I was kind of wondering why there was this, this skepticalness in my heart, this criticalness in my spirit, and this resistance to certain things. Guys, it was because I didn't want to let God be sovereign. I wanted to hold on to my own sovereignty. Well, what about this? What about in the Old Testament this? What about this? Isn't that weird? Yeah, it's weird. But you know what? God, this is God. I can't question his sovereignty. Well, I can, but as long as it pushes me towards him and not repels me away from him, because that's like kind of like a kid coming up to you and say, I don't like how you're running this family. Oh, you want to do better? You want me to start showing you the mortgage bills, the insurance, how much I pay for insurance for you? You want to know, you know, how, how much our grocery bill is each month? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, take over. You can do better than me. Go for it. Right? Like, like we're like spoiled little bratty kids sometimes because we don't want God to be sovereign. I'm sovereign. If I'm sovereign, we're all screwed. If you're sovereign, we're all screwed. We have nine billion sovereignties that are attacking each other. We're screwed. God is sovereign. We have to understand that God is holy and he is true. He rules as, as the creator and sustainer of everything. 
And then he gets to this key of David part that refers back to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where, where it says that this promised one would come from the line of David. Remember last week, we talked about how he comes from the stump of David. It's the shoot that comes out of the stump of David. Again, he's establishing that, that line of authority through David, because God said it would come through David. And now we see Jesus is the one who has the keys, which keys means authority and power that, that God gives. And so it's interesting how he spells that out. He doesn't just say he has sovereignty over this. He has the keys over this. He goes, he goes, he has the keys over death and hell. And he has the keys, the power over life and eternity in heaven. We are talking about a very powerful God here. This isn't just one of many gods that has whatever. No, he is the sovereign Lord over all creation now and forever. That's the God that I want to know. That's the God that I want to serve. That's the God that I want to follow. Verse eight, I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. Again, our belief in this statement hinges on how holy and true we think God is. Who was I talking with this week? Um, I think it was Jake at Bible study this Friday morning. What would you, what'd you say? We always, we always act according to our beliefs. You, you said it some way. I didn't say it nearly as good as Jake did, but he just said that. And I, I literally, I was like, we always act out of our belief. Because we were talking about the question of, well, does your life match your beliefs? And, and, and Jake just goes, our life always matches our beliefs. We can say we believe this, but if our life looks like this, we're believing something different than what we say. And so he says, all I, uh, I, I know all the things that you do, I have, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. Do we believe that God opens doors for us that no one can close? Our belief in that really matters. You have a little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Now, even though the church in Philadelphia seemed small and weak and insignificant, they have remained faithful and obedient. I like how one commentator said that the gospel was their message and grace and love was their motive. The gospel was their message and grace and love was their motive. That's what consumed them every day of their life. And what came out was the good news of Jesus. Now, we don't know details. <clears throat> we, we don't know exactly what was going on, but we assume that uh, just like Philadelphia was the, the gateway to the East for the Greek culture, I kind of think that maybe Philadelphia became the gateway to the East for the Jesus movement as well. Because people saw this tiny little church in this, in this little podunk place, and, and they saw this faithfulness, they saw this obedience. And even though no one would come in and say, wow, let's pattern everything after you because what you're doing is working, right? They were like, there's something unique. There's something different here. Let's dig into that. Verse nine, look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, strange, strong words, those liars who say they are Jews, but are not. Again, he's talking about the religious leaders that denied Jesus, and they relied on their religion and their religious practices and their places of worship and all the systems and laws and everything like that instead of Jesus. Remember, the Old Testament is all building up to and pointing to Jesus. He's the fulfillment and the replacement, and no longer do we need a temple. No longer do we need the law. No longer do we need all these things like that because we now follow Jesus. 
We have direct access. He is the high priest that replaces all this other crap that led up to this. Right? Even the Apostle Paul, they're like, you just call that stuff crap. Well, he even says, it's, it's like all of my righteousness is like filthy menstrual rags. Okay. <laughs> like, we get the point, Paul, right? He says we have Jesus. That's all we need because he writes the law in our hearts. If we love him and love each other, all the other laws are fulfilled in that commandment. And so we follow Jesus, and that's what we need to do. And the problem was that the religious people, that was an offense to them because there was good business. It was good for the reputation. It was good for their commerce. It was all like it gives us order in life. If I can check down the list of what makes me worthy and righteous and, and lovable, then, then I get, I'm sovereign. We go back to that again. And we fight that, but instead we surrender. How many times have I ever heard? So you just believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, you believe in him and you give your life to him. That sounds too easy. It's easy, but it's also not. Because I'm constantly fighting my sinful tendencies that are hard to die, right? So he says, those liars who are blah, 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 to come and bow down at your feet. Now that's strong language. But what is this coming and bowing down at our feet? That is a sign of surrender, of submission. They will acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what exactly this means. And honestly, I'm not going to get lost in the tall weeds on this. I know that there's a lot of, is this pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? What is this talking about? I don't really care. I'll, I'll be honest. If, if you want to dig into this, let's dig into it. But I really don't care because the point is, is in the end, he wins. And if we're on his side, on his side, we're on the winning side. And he says that, that don't worry, the suffering that you are experiencing now is temporary. And what awaits you in heaven is glory and it, perfect relationship with your creator and with every, everything that's created, right? And, and so he says, don't worry, I will make things right. Do you trust me, especially when you don't think you can? When everything uh, seems to be hitting the fan, do you still trust me? Are you faithful? Will you obey? Do you surrender? And he says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it, right? They are not left on their own. Verse 12, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And what's interesting is that this whole idea of the pillars has real significance to these people. Why? Because you know what's going on? 44,000 people were killed in Eastern Turkey, uh, recently from, from what earthquakes. Do you know that that whole region is built on volcanic activity and seismic fault lines? And so in the year 17 AD, Philadelphia was leveled. This 217 year old town decimated. Why? Because of an earthquake. And so, and, and it just constantly, just, just like we looked at another time of where they would build up and then earthquakes and all, and, and then they would rebuild and then earthquakes would destroy it. And then they'd rebuild. And so when, when God says, I will make you pillars, what is he saying? You live in a world that's falling apart, but I'm going to make you a pillar. You might not look like the grand cathedral that you want to, but I'm going to make you a pillar and you will stand the test of time. 
And then he talks about how you're going to be a pillar in the temple of God. Now, what's so cool is that Jesus says, I'm going to knock down. You guys are going to destroy this temple. And in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. What is he saying? I'm going to die and I'm going to be resurrected. And in three days, I'm the temple. And if you are in me, you are a part of God's temple. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we have to take that seriously to where instead of a temple, a building being made out of wood, iron, and stone, which seems to be indestructible, look, all this is going to fall apart someday. Everything is going to be destroyed someday. But we won't. In fact, we're going to be resurrected and we're going to experience that, that, that perfection in the presence of God. And he wants to encourage them and he wants to encourage us today with that truth. And he continues in verse 12, and I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Now, the power of a name, we've talked about this a little bit, but name is identity and character. It reveals who we really are. And I love how, how, how God has, has, over time, has renamed people based on their new identity. We always act out of who we think we are, right? If, if I think that I am this or that, I'm going to act like that. But Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to write God's name on you. And you have the citizenship. You're not citizens of Saratoga Springs or of Utah or, or, or the United States of America, you're the citizen of God's kingdom. Yes, we, we are in the world and we have to be good. Just like all throughout the Bible, it says, hey, go in. And what's, what's, what's good for the city is good for you. And we got to be good citizens here on earth. But we cannot forget that our true citizenship, our true loyalty is an eternal kingdom, not just a temporary one. I know that's hard, but it's important because he says you have citizenship in heaven. Guess what? There's going to be a lot of Americans in heaven. There's also going to be a lot of English people and Australian people and Saudi Arabian people and Russian people and Vietnamese people and African people. Like, you get what I'm saying? Like, this, the, the, the kingdom of God has citizens from a lot of countries from around the world. It means nothing in the kingdom of God. And we have to remember that, that our citizenship is first and foremost in the city of life. And what's cool is that we've looked at all the different, the bread of life, the crown of life, the book of life, all these different things. And here he's saying, you will have the name of life and you will be a citizenship. You will have citizenship in the city of life. And then verse 13, he adds on his typical closing. Anyone with ears must uh, to ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. In other words, if you can hear this, do it. All right. Notice what's missing in this passage. There's no warning. There's no concern. There's no criticism. It's, it's one of what only two where there's no warning. Their patient endurance, their loving faithfulness stands as a solid reminder of God's love in, an, in a crumbling world. God's unshakable love his eternal permanent love in a temporary and crumbling world. Now, this seemingly small and weak and insignificant church reveals the strength and faithfulness that comes from loving God. I love what Chuck Swindoll says. Um, says, the size of a congregation, the limitations of its location, or the restrictions of its budget, 
should never determine its vision. Instead, churches should set their vision based on the power of their God. God is infinite, magnificent, awesome, and mighty, beyond description or comprehension. When he chooses to open opportunities, the possibilities are endless. All we need to do is trust and follow him wherever he leads. Let God determine the vision. Let God figure out how it's going to happen. We just need to be ready to follow, right? We want to be faithful and obedient. Philadelphia was faithful because it was overcome by God's love for them. And they were inspired to love God in return. They were overwhelmed by God's love for the people around them. And so they wanted to love like God loved them. I like how Henry Martin said, the nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missional we become. I remember when Nicole and I were, were, were dating and we were engaged. Isn't it funny how it's sort of like, we got engaged, now we're going to go through premarital counseling. It's kind of like, well, you're already engaged, dummy. Like, maybe we should have done pre-engagement counseling, right? But the whole idea of premarital counseling is to talk about, is to talk about dynamics of our relationship to make sure we set ourselves into a position that works. And I will never forget Wendell and Teresa Lowen, Wendell and Shelley Lowen, Wendell and Shelley Lowen, um, they're mentors of ours, and, and, and they did our, our premarital counseling. And they talked about how a lot of times we try to like, like I'm over here, she's over here, and we're going to try to make this work. And, and, and yeah, we're both Christians, and so we have that in common. But he says, instead of an H model, let's have an A model to where the closer we're getting to God, the closer we're getting to each other. The number one priority of our marriages shouldn't be just getting closer to each other. The best gift I can give Nicole, the best gift that she can give me isn't getting closer to me. It's getting closer to Jesus. Because when that happens, if we're both pursuing Jesus, the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to each other. The same thing is true as a church. If we want to become closer and more whatever, we need to get closer to Jesus. Because a lot of times what's pushing us away from each other is the fact that we aren't pursuing Jesus. And so when, and, and I like how this, this quote says, the nearer we get to Jesus, the more his heart, his desires, his values, his goals, his vision becomes mine. Like over Nicole and I will be celebrating 25 years this summer. I'm old. Yeah. All, it's all her. It's all her. It's all her. But like, I don't want to hurt her. I want to be about what she's about. I want to, I, I, it's, it's sort of like her and I were not enmeshed in an unhealthy way, but like, like we're, we're together and we start to love the same things. And, and, and that's just how it works. And the same is true with our relationship with Jesus is that I start to want what he wants. Well, guess what? Jesus is a missionary God. The great commission is Go and make disciples. That is his heart for the world. He sees the hurting world. We can complain all we want about how bad the world is. He says, maybe you're the answer to the prayer. And if the closer we get to Jesus, the more we start to think outside of ourselves, uh, out beyond our comfort, beyond our own success, beyond all these things. And we start to look at, okay, God, how do I put into practice the things that you've given me? And then we got to understand that, that what Jesus opens up can't be closed. Now, 
he can open it and we don't have to walk through it, but that's up to us. He might be opening up doors for us that we're too afraid to go through, or we're too busy, we're too self-focused to see the opening, that we just miss out on what, what he has for us, right? And it says what he opens can't be closed, and what he closes can't be opened. Now, if he opens doors for us, I want to be running through it. I want to be, I want to be following him in what he does. So here's the big idea from this passage, okay? Faithfulness is empowered by love. Faithfulness is empowered by love. It's not just grit, determination, hard work. I gotta, I gotta be better. I gotta be better. No, no, no. It's loving. Receiving the love of God, loving him return. Seeing his love for those around me and then joining in with that love. That's what it all comes down to. It's kind of interesting this morning um, or this week as I was I was always getting ready for this. I usually try to give some really concrete, like, okay, based on this, how do we move from belief to action, from knowing to doing? And and I'll, I'll be honest, I, I was stumped because it's painfully simple. This morning, I want you to actually go home with this passage. I want you to decide what the application points are. I don't have a bow for you this morning. I want to send you home with all the things to where you and God can figure out where that bow is. I want you to wrestle with, I want you to pray to Jesus and to say, God, what do you, what does this mean? Maybe for some of us this morning, we need to know that God loves you. I just had a conversation with someone this week saying they never knew that God loved them. And I think that's so common across religions, cultures, agendas, is that we're all here to perform to try to earn something that's kind of unattainable, unachievable. We're on this treadmill of religion or or works or whatever it is, and, and, and we've never been told, get off the treadmill. Stop running because you think you're running to God and you're running away from God. Maybe some of us this morning need to just pause and just say, God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. Let's wrestle with that. What does that love mean? Maybe we've been, maybe we've gone through experiences of abuse, either spiritually, emotionally, physically. I, I don't know. Maybe that word love is a trigger word for you. Of maybe, maybe people have told you that they love you. Oh, this is all out of love. And that's bullcrap, is what that is. It's manipulation. It's hurt. It's, it's not good. And I'm just praying that God can heal that. That you can see what real love is because real love is not manipulative. It's transformational. Maybe you've been told that love is just, hey, free love, whatever, love, be loving. It's not genuine love because if I really love my kids, I'm not just going to just turn them loose. I care about them too much to just let them go crazy. I don't want them to get hurt. And so therefore I lovingly will discipline them. Like what does God's love for you look like? Some of us, maybe we just need to hear God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Because it's really hard to love someone that we don't feel like we're being loved by first, right? 
it's hard to love someone that doesn't like you. And so I could, I could talk with us about how do we love God better, but maybe for a lot of us here, maybe we need to first realize that we are loved first and that out of that love, he's going to show us how to love him. That is such a freeing thing. That is such a powerfully transformative thing. Just knowing that I am a chosen child of God. You know, what's really cool is that a lot of times, you know, we think, I know that there's some thought that we're actually like, like God's physical children. And then he kind of, is kind of like, I, I love you kids. And they're like, well, you kind of have to, because you're my parent, right? You had me. So you have to take responsibility for me, right? God's, God's love for us is an adoptive love. He wasn't bound to us. He chose us. He picked us. He says, you are now mine. There's a, there's a transfer of identity, a transfer of belonging. And he gives us that new name in him. When we take on the name of Jesus, that means all the things that Jesus did. He died for our sins. He forgives us. He transforms us. He gives us eternal life. These things are all made true in him. Maybe for some of us, we need to look at how our relationships are with each other. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a coworker, a neighbor, I don't know. Relationship with others. If we are having a hard time living a grace-based life that's loving and forgiving and gracious, maybe we need to look at God's heart for that person. Even the hardest to love people are still loved by God. And if God loves somebody, who am I to say, well, yeah, God, you're wrong on this one, though, because do you know how horrible of a human being this person is? Yeah, I know how horrible of a person you are, too, and I still love you. If, if we have broken relationships, let's run to God's heart and see what he sees in that person. And here's the cool thing is, again, this isn't just on our own. This isn't grit and determination and willpower. This is all empowered by the Spirit of God. This is unnatural stuff. Because guess what? The world system, tooth for a tooth, eye for an eye, life for a life. Right? That's the, that's the natural system of the world. Every civilization in the history of the world has always operated on that type of a system. They're called vengeance killings. What breaks that cycle? Jesus. Forgive them for they know not what they do. That is the good news of Jesus. That's the, the way that he has loved us. That's the way that we are called to love him and each other. So what's God's word? What is God's spirit calling us to do based on this passage? What action steps can we take? This morning, we want to end up with, we want to close out with communion. Communion is a time where we celebrate, we remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. And he says to us, this is my body that was broken for you. This was my blood that was shed for you. And every time you do this, remember the way I sacrificed for you. I gave everything for you to set you free. And so this morning, um, we don't have membership, so you don't have to be a member. 
We're not going to go check anything. It, it, this is an open table. I think we have the table. Drew, do we have the table? He's back there. Okay. Come on out, Drew. <laughs> so so here's how we operate at Greenhouse. We're back there running sound, and all of a sudden, Drew goes, uh, I, the communion stuff is in my truck. And the worship team is like, where's the communion stuff? Are we doing communion? Just kidding. No, I'm just making that up. This was all a grand entrance. This is all part of the manipulative strategy to set things up. Just go. Way to go. High five, high five, high five. Way to go. There we go. Well, now that we're in the moment. No, hey, in all seriousness, that's I, I love that this happened this morning because there's nothing manipulative about this. There's nothing staged about this. This is real. This is genuine. Jesus took his closest followers aside right before he knew what he was going to go through. And they're all kind of like, wait, what? We're having dinner. And he starts, why are we having the Seder meal right now? Like, what's going on? And Jesus knows what's going on. They just don't. And, and, and at the moment, they didn't understand it. So this morning, as we come forward, we're going to have the band. You can come on up, band. They're going to close out with two songs. And I just want to encourage us to spend time just talking with Jesus. Just ask him, what do you want for me to hear? What, what do you want me to hear this morning? What, what do I need to receive? What do I need to give? What is it that your love wants to do in me right here, right now? So if you have put your faith in the saving work of Jesus, come on up here. Receive that gift. There's nothing magical or mystical about the bread or the juice or the wine or anything like that. It's just a celebration. It's remembrance of what Jesus has done in us and what he wants to do through us. So worship band is going to play. You guys can come on up um, and you can have your communion right here. And uh, if you need prayer or whatever, talk to someone. Talk to me. I'll be back running sound in the back or, or just find somebody. Just dig into what God wants for us this morning. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your love. The fact that you are not some cruel taskmaster taskmaster who wants to see us fail. You're just waiting for us to screw up so you can punish us. God, you love us. You're passionate about us. God, you want us to, to join in with what you're doing. Just like the church in Philadelphia, we, we were a small church. Seemingly insignificant in a, in, a, in a vast mission field, in a, in, a, in a crazy world that's crumbling apart. But yet, God, you have made us pillars that are called to reflect your good news. The good news that you love us just the way we are, and you love us too much to leave us that way. God, I pray that this morning as we just celebrate the gift that you gave us, God, I, I pray that we can experience the freedom that comes from your salvation the joy that comes from your love. God, I thank you for each one here. I thank you for those who are online. I thank you for those who are going to watch or listen later. God, I pray that you would just reveal yourself in this moment. God, we love you so much. Thank you so much for loving us. Praise you. Amen.